Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. We'll be in James chapter 1 this morning, verses 2 through 11. Always speaking of tech and mixing boards and amplification, uh, what we're doing here is not so different. Even this weekend at this tech workshop, we learned about and talked about how the work of those mixing the room is to help everyone hear what is being played or said clearly and well according to the intention of the pianist or the violinist or the preacher. And in a real respect, the work of preaching and your work of hearing is to hear God's word through the preaching of the word. Now, preaching is an exactly exact transmission word for word. God has ordained that his word would not merely be read, but heralded. So that's what we're doing now. But insofar as it is the word of God preached, so it is God's word for us today. So pray for me ahead of Sundays, and pray for me even as I preach, and pray for your brothers and sisters that we may hear and receive just as we have sung. Well, this last week I was speaking with a friend who was at a church recently where before the service... A representative of a prayer team came out and said, our prayer team was praying and we have a certainty that there is someone among us who has hip pain. And it was a 5,000 person church. Now, every church has their way, not mocking. That is not how we would go about praying and putting our finger on needs. I know your needs, you share them. We just have to ask each other. I have it on good authority that there are many in this room going through a trial. In fact, that represented in this room are many various trials. And I say it on good authority on the basis of the passage I'm about to read to you, that your trials are not for nothing, not hardly. Let's read together from God's word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And this is God's word for us today. This passage, verse 2 through 18, could be one sermon easily. I'm preaching that larger section in two parts. Verses 2 through 11 
this morning, but you'll see how they hang together under this theme of trials. But trials are not the goal of the text. What word would you like to be true of yourself, to describe yourself? If I were to say, pick a word, uh, how would you describe yourself? Oh, these days we may pick uh, some activity we're good at or, um, or, or, or our vocation or a personality trait. But how about complete, uh, perfect, uh, lacking in nothing? Those are very desirable words. Humanity as it ought to be. Wouldn't it be nice if your spouse were complete? Perfect and lacking in nothing. <laughs> you could say the same about yourself in that, in that case. No, these are great words. In other words, whole. Whole. This is James's great aim for the church. He does not bury the lead. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, this sermon is about how God works through trials to complete his people, to bring about wholeness in our lives. Put negatively, to rid us of the fractures in our hearts and the divisions in our hearts which give way to the symptoms of divisions between us. To see that we are at one with God, not adulterers in that relationship, not his enemies, but his friends and a faithful spouse, his church, wholly devoted to him, whole before him, whole in him and because of him and because of his grace. This is a sermon about that, how God works in trials to bring about wholeness in his people, how he goes about it, and how we can get in on it. And of course, all that God will do on account of that is by grace. He's the God who gives grace and gives more grace. We'll get about this in four movements. We'll start off with the prescription in verses 2 through 4. Well, verse 2, excuse me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. We'll stop there for a moment. It sounds like a good prescription so far. Joy is on the bottle. A little early, though, James. Come on. Uh, Listen to me for a bit. Uh, If we get a new physician or there's an appointment with a doctor in town for anyone in our family, you come back and the first question is, how did it go? And what really is meant by that is, did the doctor listen well? And did they respond in a way that made sense given what you shared? (laughs) It almost doesn't matter if they've got it exactly right if they look past you and start talking over you and tell you what you need. James here, right out of the gate. Uh, My name is James, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, here's your prescription. (laughs) Wait, Uh, 
No, James knows us good and well. He knows his hearers good and well. This is a good prescription. So let's study the label. Count it all joy. Count or consider or reckon it. It's a value statement. It has to do with your evaluation. Consider it to be all joy. Consider it that good that it's all joy. Reckon it. All joy. The Apostle Paul used the same word in Philippians 3. But whatever I gained, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ. So all of his gains, all of his credentials, everything that he's got in this world, uh, He values it as worth nothing when compared with the greater value of Christ. He considers, counts, reckons Christ of greater value, you see. So so count, consider it all joy. It. I guess it all turns on what the it is, doesn't it? Whether this prescription will go down easy or seem to make sense to us. It. Well, we'll get there in a moment. All joy. Well, this is apparently what it is like. It's all joy. Now, all joy isn't all joy as in not anything else. It doesn't mean so much exclusivity, excluding all other descriptors, as much as purity. It's an unhesitatingly, unconflicted joy. Well, what is it then? Oh, here we come. Count it all joy. It's a a beautiful little line to put over your door to remind you to be happy. Oh, but here it comes. My brothers, he says. He addresses us affectionately in love. He is not just a family doctor. He's a doctor who is family. And he knows who he's talking to. And he knows your situation. Consider it all joy, my dear brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials, trials of various kinds. I'm mixing up Peter and Paul there, that it's an indication that the apostles are speaking the same way about these things. Consider it all joy when, what's it, when you meet trials of various kinds. So if you were thinking, okay, uh, But my trial doesn't count. Well, he's a good pastor and he knows you. And so he says of various kinds. Uh, Multivarious, multicolored trials. All different kinds of trials. Now in context, his readers together corporately had some shared trials. Poverty being one of them. Extreme poverty. And some of that owing, we think, to another kind of trial, religious persecution. It's hard. And some of you have lost a job, you've lost a sale, you've lost a promotion because of your integrity, your honesty, simply your Christian faith and the fact of it. And you've counted the cost. Maybe very few others in the room know about it, but you know about it. For God to you, He sees the trial, and he knows it. 
and in that trial, you may count it all joy. How you can do that is the subject of our sermon, of course. Well, in context, he's addressing the trial of poverty and religious persecution and poverty flowing from it. But he speaks of various kinds of trials to be deliberately broad. We're not to narrow this to a certain kind of trial that someone else has so that maybe we don't need to count our particular trial as all joy. It can include bereavement, uh, loneliness, uh, missed hopes, uh, broken relationships. No doubt in this church, so much of their biting and bitter jealousy and quarreling, which was a real problem, it comes up over and over again, and slander and, and the ungodly use of the, the tongue, uh, has meant a trial for all kinds of church members who found themselves talked about or talked to in ways that were harsh and cruel and unkind and unforgiving, maybe. So all kinds of trials. Whatever comes to your mind when I say I have it on good authority, there are various trials represented in this room. Be encouraged in the midst of your trial that the Lord has spoken to you in your very trial. And it is not a superficial or an unhearing word, for he knows it and he knows you perfectly. Well, when I hear these words... I wonder if it wouldn't make for a kind of superficial Christianity where at this point you hear this and you think, my trial is very bad, uh, but God says to count it all joy, so I better at least say as much. Um, and you go through a trial and you're speaking with someone about it and you say, well, I count it all joy. Um, and it could come off as a, a cheap and superficial expression and maybe some. Times often, it is obviously not that. You mean to say it by faith. Nevertheless, when we've got no idea how that is the case, and when it's not actually joy all the way down, well, it can be a superficial expression. Well, we don't want it to be. And James doesn't want it to be for his hearers. That's why he continues, see? Four, verse three, isn't it nice when he explains... For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We'll unpack that in a moment. With our trials and suffering of various kinds, we tend to downplay it to ourselves and maybe to others. Oh, it will be okay. It's the kind of a way of saying, oh, let's talk about something else. <laughs> or I'm sure it won't last that long. And we want to be comforting. Um, we don't want to be a distraction when speaking of our own trials. I'm sure it will be okay. It is a way of downplaying it when in fact, well, humanly speaking, you're not so sure. And we also overplay our trials at times. Uh, it's so bad and, and we might not want to say it with words because we've read Bible passages like this. But if our heart could speak, we might say, it's so bad and it's only bad. Or someone's sharing of a horrifying scenario in, that they're inside. A circumstance that you would never put on anyone else. And they are very low. 
and you sympathize rightly, but even you're tempted to say, it's so bad, it's only bad. And however you would put it, to communicate in your response that there is no hope and you don't see a way out of it either. You don't see any good in it, that is, either. And then some of us can underplay it. And I'm going to be careful with this one because it's a biblical truth, but it's not everything there is to say. By underplaying, I mean pointing to the truth that in the end, all will be vindicated. All rights will be shown and sin will be judged. In the end, God will make all things right. And we should say that to one another. But it is not all that we can say. And it is not all that is needed in some cases, and it is not all that is needed for James's readers and this morning for you and for me. For there is more in our trials than getting through it. There is more in our trials than an opportunity to look to God and know that he will make all things right in the end in spite of it. These are things we tend to do downplaying, overplaying, underplaying, but not James. James is happy to call them trials, and he says there are various kinds. No, the trials are real. He gets them. He's up close with them. They've animated him to write, uh, and they're bad. So trials in themselves are not inherently, inherently good, certainly when it's because of sin against one person or another. The curse is good insofar as God is justly judging the world, but not in so far as the curse is inherently good, as it strikes us in so many ways. And so one commentator put it this way, that, that James has attempted to breach the stronghold of our minds with this beginning line. Just imagine that, breach the stronghold of our lines, of our minds. Count it all joy, my brothers. Sounds good so far. What are you talking about, Doc? When you meet various trials, when you meet trials of various kinds, oh, in other words, the medicine is the trial. Yes, and it's good for you. Wow. You know, it's easy to feel when we're in a trial, isn't it? To feel the trial, to feel the pain, to feel the the arrow, the knife in the back. To feel the loss of the job. James is calling you to think in your trials. It's possible that you let your feeling in your trials decide how you think about God who is over your trials. Do not do that. This is why the prescription out of the gate is consider it, value it as joy, all of your various trials. And I'm not saying that to you as a mere man. I'm just transmitting, as if a speaker, God's very word to you. Friend, from God, count your trials as all joy. Now, that ought to shake you like God, by his spirit, breaching the stronghold of your mind that wants to say that the trial is like a disease. It's just bad, only bad. Or that maybe it's like chemotherapy. It's bad but it helps somehow, hurting you even as it makes you better. Net gain, maybe, get some life out of it. 
No, in some fashion, which we will explore, these trials are bad, but better for us than they are hard on us because God is in them. The Christian life is a fight of the mind to believe this. Well, some medicines, you don't really need to know how they work to take them. Like, I don't really ever know how they work. How many? All right, I'm good. If you can get me to take it uh, in the first place. But once I've got it, and if I'm hurting enough, then I'm good. Some medicines, it's kind of good to know how it works. And this one, well, it's good to know how it works. In fact, I would say, you already know how it works. If you're in Christ, you already know how it works. We move from a prescription now, shift metaphors to a path. Verses 3 through 4. Watch the path, for you know that the testing of your faith... Oh, I thought he was talking about trials. Well, he was which apparently test your faith. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The label says, uh, you know, here's how it works. And it says, uh, for you already know. What label says that? Count it all joy in your various trials. That's crazy. For you already know how this goes. Don't you, Christian? Is not the heart of our faith, the Lord of glory, crucified, a very bad thing which our very gracious God used for good for our good? In an ironic and surprising way? Oh, if he can turn the cross into your eternal salvation, he can do good in your upside-down circumstances. I promise you that as one transmitting the word of God to you through James by the Spirit. This is no secret. He doesn't say, I have a secret for you. This is an open, an open matter of truth for all Christians. Let's consider the kind of path we have here. It's a hard path. We've talked about that. We assess it. We know ourselves. Our trials are hard. No problem. James acknowledges it. The path is also a good path, and it's a good path because of where the path leads. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now look with me in verse 12. All of this is leading to verse 12, which will start next week's sermon. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's, that's where we're going. That's what we want. For when he has stood the test, the test, see, he will receive the crown of life with God has promised to those who love him. That's where we're going. Uh, true, full perfection will not be known until we see Jesus and are like him as he is. We'll repeat it almost every sermon. James says, we stumble, all stumble in many ways. All of us stumble in many ways. That's the church. All of us stumbling in many ways. Nevertheless, in our trials, God bringing about steadfastness that brings about completeness, wholeness. And this word perfection. Perfection, a word that James uses seven times through the book, which doesn't seem to be a mistake. When he speaks about the wisdom from above, he'll describe it with seven attributes. 
Uh, maybe don't make more of it than you want and don't go counting every word in these books. Maybe trust a teacher with that. Uh, I consider this to be a wink. It's James's polish on his book. It's a little bit of the point he's trying to make. If you read him carefully enough, the emphasis is that of wholeness, spiritual wholeness, wholeness as a Christian, perfection, completeness, that we would lack nothing. It's a hard path, a good path, and it's a scenic path. There are trials and trails and different kinds of hills, various kinds of trials, but it's more than just that. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You can actually watch these scenes unfold in your own life. You can watch these scenes unfold in the lives of your believing family. You can watch these scenes unfold in the lives of your brothers and sisters. James fully expects these scenes to unfold in the lives of these churches that are having so much trouble. That's encouraging, isn't it? All consumed with bitter jealousy and Tongues lighting the churches on fire, and he's after it in verse 2 with the medicine, but he fully expects God to work in their midst, as I know and trust he is in ours. Steadfastness, the opposite of instability, which we'll get to shortly. Trials. In Scripture, God would not just have us to get through them, but to know that He is putting us through them. But even more, it's not just that we are to get through them or that God is putting us through them, but that God is putting the trial through us, you see. (laughs) The thing you're going through, fill in the blank, or, or maybe it's blank, comma, blank, comma, blank. Can I get an amen? Uh, Add syllabus shock, students, and professors. Add a few more layers for those of you who are leading in an academic institution. Add a few more layers for those of you who have a kid. Add a few more layers. I guess everyone's got enough layers. I'm not trying to rank us, you understand. It can be more than one at a time. It's a scenic path. But in all the layers and all the various kinds of trials, God is actually getting through to you as he gets the trial through you. He is making you into something. Like a muscle, when it is broken down through lifting and there is tearing, there is real tearing, and it really hurts. But with the nutrition, certainly enough protein from the word of God, so he builds you up stronger. And he is doing that to the extent that you are having a hard time and that you are having difficulty and suffering, to a greater extent, our Lord is at work to strengthen you if you're his. But don't miss that word test. If the pressure comes on and you're like, ah, I'm not going to church, I'm good, and you're gone for a couple months, and your Christian friends ask you, uh, we haven't seen you, or where do you go to church? Ah, I used to go to Heritage Bible Church, and 
Yeah, well, they don't understand my trials, and if God's like that, blaming God, there's all kinds of ways that trials actually lead someone out. And you can think of somebody. I can. You never rejoice in it. But it is what testing does. It proves the genuineness of a thing. And so trials prove the genuineness of your faith. And when you still believe in and through the trial, rejoice that you're the Lord's. And it's proof that you're the Lord's. Oh, what if we never saw our faith tested so that we never knew? Oh, to the extent that you're tested with trouble and trial and you hang on to Jesus, your assurance grows, you see. As you count it all joy and struggle to count it all joy, but receive this this command is good from God and seek to obey it and remind yourself of how God works and how the trials work to test your faith, to produce steadfastness and pray for steadfastness that you may be whole as God is making you whole. Oh, if that's your prayer, well, praise God for that. And as you endure more and more, so you see more and more of God's grace at work in you to bring about your faith and to strengthen it. Not even just to show it. We have a prescription, a path, and also now a problem, verses 5 through 8. Oh, reading James is all about trying to relate the parts. And an argument could be made in the first chapter that it's a bit of a shotgun situation and that the parts are not tightly related. And maybe I'd grant that they're not tightly related. But I think they are related. At the very least, all the parts relate to each other. And it's worth meditation as to how. Following verse 4, we have this. Sounds like a new topic, but hang with me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's in the way for you of counting it all joy when you meet various trials? Maybe you haven't met one in the moment. You're going to meet one. What's in the way of counting it all joy? Well, maybe it's not seeing how God is producing steadfastness. Maybe it's not understanding how he's at work in you in particular. You're in decent company in verse 5. I think you're on James's mind. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Um... James can't cover all the things right now. And as it is, he knows some trials, but not all the trials. But thankfully, God knows them all. Uh, But he knows that some of you lack wisdom. You're willing to say, I should count it all joy, but this is hard. Uh, Fair enough. I don't understand. I'm having a hard time even believing, verses 3 through 4. Fair enough. If anyone lacks wisdom... Let him ask God. We have a problem, a lack of wisdom 
And very quickly, another prescription to deal with that. He's layering the prescriptions, and it's okay. They go together just fine. Now we have that problem in verse 5 and the solution in the second half. Well, why can it be hard to ask God for wisdom or, or to pray to him at all? Because that's what this is, right? We're going to do that tonight for each other. Ask God for wisdom in our various trials. You don't have to share with the whole group. You don't have to share with a small group. You should share with some of your brothers and sisters your trials. But we'll pray tonight, an evening prayer along these lines, and with the help of this passage... Why is it hard to pray? Why is it hard to ask God? Well, I suspect there are two reasons, two possibilities that don't have to even intersect. In the first place, it may be that you're simply discouraged for one reason or another. I don't believe that God hears you, has good intentions for you, or he's got other people to tend to, or maybe you've messed things up. James has you in mind. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God who? God who generously gives to all without reproach. That helps. The God who gives generously. So maybe you, some people hesitate to, some people don't pray except in a trial. Uh, And then some people who pray regularly, like, don't pray in a trial because they feel bad. Uh, I've, I've messed up. And maybe those prayers are coming from the wrong place or we don't understand God properly. This is an alignment. This is a help for our alignment on the path. No, we must pray. No, our God is big and we are small. And yes, he has other people to tend to. But he's big enough to tend to all of us and to you. In fact, this language of gives generously is right. You could also put it, the idea underneath it sometimes gives rise to a word in our translation, and sometimes another word helps bring out some of the texture behind what the author was saying. He gives in an undivided fashion. He's not undivided in his attention. He gives singularly. He's focused on you. He gives without hesitation. He gives generously in an undivided way, you see. So he's big, but he's also a big giver. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I've never done it. Never will like that. I probably won't give him a fish though. I usually don't have one. But if then you are evil, you who are evil know how to good give gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? All right, so this is realistic. You're evil. And you really do give good gifts to your kids. Both are true. God is not evil. And he is a gracious Father who generously gives to his children. Well, you have no idea. Well, he gives generously and to all, and to all who come to him in this way, without exception for Christians. And this is what it means to be a Christian. We don't come to God 
in faith for the first time saying, I've got it together now. I've got something to give to you in order that you would save me. All we bring is what he has given himself in the Lord Jesus. In other words, we come with empty hands to receive. And so it is here. Uh, He doesn't give generously to some who bring a little bit of something for him, except open arms. He gives generously. He gives to all. He gives without reproach. This is very important. He doesn't give saying, and by the way, I saw that. He doesn't give and say, you messed this all up, but okay, I'll help since you asked. This is a portrait of a very generous God, is it not? And this is our God to whom we pray. And he promises to give us wisdom, I presume, in the context of this difficulty in going through trials. You're going through a trial, get on your knees, ask God for help to see him in it. Confess that you know he is. Ask him for help to take joy in it. Ask him for help to see the steadfastness come about. To see your faith proven true through it. He apparently, according to this word, and I transmit what I see on the page, is generous to answer that prayer. So don't be discouraged in your trials, not in talking to God. But don't be double-minded. And this is a different issue. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now we read that and we think, oh, I've doubted, I've wondered. Okay, he's not talking about what we all might do as finite humans who who are are fickle at times in our doctrine and clarity and and affection for God and even intention in our prayers. Now, here's what he means. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. What is he like? He's a double-minded man. Here's the point. Split allegiances. The Lord Jesus, Matthew 6, more Sermon on the Mount stuff. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in any other God you make up. The double-minded. So in our prayers, no, God doesn't answer the prayer who prays hedging his or her bets, who prays kind of not wanting God to answer the prayer. Maybe you don't want to pray for joy in your trials. Why not? Could it be that you secretly like blaming God? Maybe you talk that way. Maybe you don't out loud. But secretly you're harboring a sense of Christian victimhood, (laughs) which isn't a thing. No. Or maybe you, you like the excuse to sin because you're under so much pressure and have so much going on, you can talk that way to your spouse or your kids and you can entertain yourself in secret with that enticement. You can give yourself over to that old thing because this isn't the time. There's too much to deal with. I'm in the midst of a trial. No, 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 no. That's such a double-minded way, a doubting way, a judging God way. That's the real problem. If you lack wisdom, no problem. Ask God. If you lack wisdom and don't really want to ask him or ask him honestly, 
you kind of don't want him to answer. You kind of like whatever else it is that you're doing. You're a double-minded person, unstable in your ways. Unstable. Just imagine the picture of one with one foot on land and one foot in a canoe. Okay? Is that you? Unstable? That's no place to be. That's no word to describe yourself. If you stay in this path, you'll fall. But it is God's purpose for his people, whom he's brought forth by his word of truth, to hear this word of truth, that he is testing your faith to produce steadfastness, to produce completeness, so that you might lack nothing, so that you might arrive on that day and receive the crown of life. And he is eager and generous to give to all who ask him without blaming you. When you go to him honestly, he will with single-minded attention answer your prayers if you come to him with single-minded devotion, with a desire for him to answer your prayers. Let's come that way tonight. Like the wind blowing waves, let, us not, let that not be a description of us church family. So the answer for the discouraged is to pray to God in faith that he is working and pray to him in faith for wisdom to see how he is working, trusting that he is single-minded in his commitment to you. And what's the answer for the double-minded person if that's you this morning? Well, to turn, repent and turn to God in faith, asking for wisdom, knowing that he is single-minded in his attention to those who are single-minded in their approach, who come to him singularly through the Lord Jesus and humbly with arms open to receive, not one arm behind the back hiding something from him in case he isn't real or doesn't care and is hiding something from you. No, we confess a generous God who gave us the Lord Jesus on a cross and he hears you pray. So, come to him with both hands open and he will give you joy in the midst of your various trials. Now, finally, a picture. Verses 9 through 11. I take this as a for instance. Okay, so now what does that look like for those in that congregation dealing with poverty for various reasons, and I take it in this case for the believers in that congregation who are wealthy. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of grass, he'll pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." The gospel levels the playing field, does it not? Oh, do you have nothing? Humanly speaking, has everything been taken from you? You started with little and it's gone. You started with a lot and it's gone. Impoverished in one way or another. You don't have the family you wish you had, the home you wish you had, the job you used to have, the job you always hoped you'd have, the spouse you've dreamed of. Never had it, lost it. In this case, material poverty, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. For our great God and Father raises up the lowly. 
And he lifts your head. And he gives you his riches in Christ. They are all yours. Whatever you don't have in your hands this morning. And for those who are rich in whatever way, in this case materially, for many of us materially enough, let us boast in our humiliation. In other words, the cross brings us low before God. For whatever we have in this life, we could go to bed and wake up with nothing. We could go to bed and not wake up. We all come to God with nothing in our hands to give him, only to receive. So let us boast in the cross where God gave his son who took on poverty that we might take on his riches. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And one of those blessings is the knowledge, the knowledge that we have that our trials test our faith and produce steadfastness and ready us for that day when we will receive the crown of life. Nothing will be lost. Your trials are not wasted. Your trials are not for nothing. On the basis of this word, like a speaker transmitting sound, I guarantee it to you. Let us pray. Oh, dear Father in heaven, Father of lights, the God who never changes, we confess that we change in so many ways, uh, more ways than we know, for you know. We ask for help this morning. We ask for wisdom and insight into our trials today, our trials plural today, that you might help us to see how you are at work that we might live wholly in light of this truth, that in the midst of our various trials, you are doing a productive and a glorious work to complete us and perfect us so that for whatever we feel we lack now, we will lack nothing. And so, Father, help us to count our trials as joy to think rightly about them, to come to you, the generous God, to ask for wisdom, and to boast rightly in the cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen.